I'm Tabor Gifford, and the views I express in this podcast are entirely my own and are in no way reflective of the organizations mentioned within. But, so I think that Robinhood, no, so Robinhood, that's a lie. That's a total lie because, because they're selling user data, their structure, there was no way that they could make money off the fast like brokerage that they're, they're playing fast and loose with it. They were selling user data for their revenue stream. To, sh- to show retail investor trader behavior. Um, but it's a it, it's an issue for me because they did champion themselves as being as making building wealth more equitable. actually not a podcast person at all like I, I i rarely listen to podcasts and i think there's a couple reasons for that um which is kind of weird because i'm about to analyze like i mean what what is a podcast it's just it's just an episodic audio recording right that's all it is yeah. so i i think that but there are definitely different kinds like specific genre kinds of podcasts that have emerged as as being popular and the you know the old like talk radio style like the daily like the new york times daily do you listen to the daily no you do i listen to bbc oh you don't yes today so so i don't listen a lot of my friends listen to daily and i don't listen to daily because i cannot stand the sound of michael barbaro's voice (laughs) yeah like i can't I really can't. And and I, I remember even from an early age, I remember my parents were huge talk radio people and they would listen to NPR. It was like NPR mornings all weekend. And I remember just being frustrated at like the excruciating enunciation that like yeah. radio hosts do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know why that annoyed me so much, but, but I think that, uh, I think that Michael Barbaro, <laughs> I, I feel bad just like leaning into him, but but I do think that my personal hell is Michael Barbaro reading out loud every horrible thing that I've said or done to other people for my entire life. That's, mm. I would I would just die. I would expire. You would enunciate um, everything. Um, yeah, yeah with, with excruciating. BBC does that too. It's like, you know, welcome to BBC Radio. This is your host. Yeah. Host. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I can just. Bangladesh just is burning this morning. Children running across yeah. the street, rampant, no clothes. And I don't know why it's something that annoys me. It's probably, it's probably something I should unpack there, but. But so that's like the one, you know, that's one genre of podcast, just like the information delivery, high production, someone who is a professional speaking. Um, and then there's like the the very conversational, like this genre of podcast. So you've got some celebrity interviews, whether they're a professional interviewer or not, or just some celebrity who wanted to have a podcast, they just bring other people on through their network 
and just have conversations, right? Whether, you know, in, in various degrees of humor and like intellectual uh, depth. Um, and so my frustration with those, while I find those to be super interesting, my frustration is I like want to jump into the conversation. It's, it's hard for me to just listen to two people talk because, and it, it, no, seriously. I, I, and it happens when I was listening to yours, like all, and it's even worse because I know on your, I, like at this point, I think I know 95% of the people who've been in your podcast. Right. So it makes it even worse because you'll be talking to someone and I just want to jump in. And that's definitely a personality thing, but it just, it makes it tough for me to listen to podcasts because I sit there and which, which is a good thing because I would just immediately devalue the podcast itself because I'm, 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 you know, then I'd just be interrupting people who actually have like an expert opinion and, and deserve to be talking about that. But, but I guess that doesn't really stop me in real life. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that's funny. Um, no, that's nice that I think that's the beautiful thing about podcasts. Like you're so engaged. And there are these genres of podcasts that make you feel like, you know, hey, I want to pitch in, especially for you, for us, because like we're friends and you're like, hey, I want to like, you know, say something, crack a joke or whatever. Um, But yeah, yeah, yeah. going back to like that excruciating enunciation and that like early 2000 radio host style, it's like. It still exists, but people are really, they've moved away from that. People are really not doing that anymore, except for like some of the news channels. And yeah. it's good and bad because right now it's like the, the graph is like going down. There are like a million podcasts in America or like English, spe- English speaking or whatever. Like this is the worst time to start a podcast. And uh, not being a professional right. or not being famous yeah. definitely doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like the most saturated market right now. Because well, it's so easy to do. You just need a microphone. Yeah. yeah. And That's you just it. like for people. <laughs> who, device. For, the, for the most part, people who love to talk. Um, it's like it's like their wet dream, you know, like, fuck, I can like put this out into the world. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I uh, know people, people can't interrupt me. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, what I'm banking on is that I just have to tell myself that this is for the long run and that this is something nice and I want to continue because I feel like I'll be able to achieve something. And it's not about like listenership or nothing. It's, even on a, like a very selfish level, it's like continuing conversations with my friends. Like we live in a world where it's like really sad, but I needed an excuse. Also my social skills and my ability to keep in touch with people is so bad. Like I needed the excuse of a podcast to like be in touch with my friends. And that is the, that is the world we're living in right now. Yeah. But that's super cool. Cause I mean, you're also a creative and so you're like creating something here if you're doing this. So you know, it becomes these aren't a project, like these a conversations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You needed you needed to, a project and to create something to uh, to put yourself on a connection schedule with your friends. But yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with with that, and I think that the first episode cracks me up because you basically have like an MID exit interview with Irina. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like all right, 
All right, here we are out. What did we think? What could have been better? <laughs> Wait, okay, let's get started. I'm going to keep that conversation in because that was a good one. Yeah, dude. Um, keep, but keep, let me introduce uh, I don't really care. All right, let me introduce all right, you. All right, all right. Um, welcome to Not Enough Design. Today's guest, my friend Tabor Gifford, um, IDMID, RISD. That's where we met, obviously. And one of the few people at RISD MID who doesn't have a design background like myself and he and Suk. Um, you have a marketing background, BA from Bucknell. Yeah, more or less. I don't know. See, I don't even know if I have that. <laughs> more or less. <laughs> Maybe they gave it to me in check. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I, don't you feel like... <laughs> Like, I feel like the only way to introduce me in a podcast would be like, here's Tabor Gifford, just some guy. Here's Tabor Gifford, a guy I met um, in my studio. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like, but, I mean, I don't even, uh, we got a degree in industrial design and I don't know. So like, you, you, you're in UX design as well. And how often do you have to, are you, you're doing UX, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you often have to explain to people how like you learn things in your ID degree that are analogous to UX? I have to explain to people how I learned things in my life that are analogous <laughs> to UX. Like everything is yeah, analogous yeah. to UX. Like it's a user experience. I know. I know, like it anything. Is. Even marketing is kind of, kind of, I don't know. No, it concepts does. I think it informs it. But then there's so many people who went through these UI UX boot camps. It's, it's like they know UX to the nth degree. And I'm like, wait, what's a modal? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, definitely had to give myself a rundown on the glossary of UI UX terms because that's obviously not something we... Well, or did you take a, a software class at RISD, like a software design? No, I didn't. I did not. Yeah. That is either. even, that, that's like, yeah, it's even more surprising that I'm here. But there's like, yeah. we have so much in common because we both come from like a not design background and more or less management background. And then we both did ID yeah. and now we're both in UX. And so we keep getting into fields that we have no prior knowledge of, like about. Like, why do you, th like, and, and we can still do it and we still do it. So that makes me think that a lot of these courses, like, Hey, come learn UX, this is UX bootcamp. It's all like a money grab, like everything else really. Oh, I mean, for, yeah. for some part, maybe that's not a fair statement entirely because for some part, a lot of people might benefit from like a UX course, but you don't really need it. See, I don't know. I think that there's a lot. I actually think there's a lot of value in the boot camps, um, both for UI UX and for all the software developers who take them. Because, so I mean, in my on my teams, there are you know there's the people like us who came in with less of a background, but we're supported by. I'm supported absolutely by the UX UI boot camp people, who are who are nice enough to be like, oh, oh yeah, you didn't know this. Like, let me let me help you out with that. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, and, and also those are, I mean, those are technical 
programs that cost a lot less than a design degree and and get people into their the job placement rates for boot camps are incredible, right? Oh really? So so like yeah, well that's what they all espouse. It's it's you know, they're they're crash courses that then almost guarantee job placement. At least that's my understanding. I could be completely wrong about that. But no, maybe no, you have a point. I'm, no, I'm pretty yeah, sure that's maybe. their value. Probably. Yeah. You know, maybe they are. Like um I throw things out there. Um, you know, <laughs> I like to be devil's advocate. Makes for a good podcast. Yeah, me know? too. Yeah. Me Actually, too, of course. I did a UX boot boot camp. No, I'm just kidding. I <laughs> No, I I mean I think that that's their value. Um, and we're definitely going to need programs like that uh, because you can, not everybody can can do the like thinking degree uh, because then I just don't think you would have a very productive team. <laughs> yeah, not, that's not true. a valuable team, right? That is true. Um, like in my team, I have an ID background and the other designer has a visual design background. So I think right now we're at a stage in UX where UX doesn't really come from like a very traditional established college program. So it's like this mix and match of people um, who make up this industry, which is exciting. But also sometimes it can be uh, anticlimactic uh, when it comes to you know, what a UX designer does, like for the, for the major part of it. Like I'm not talking about a few UX designers who work for very exciting companies. Like, Hey, we, I'm a UX designer, created Airbnb or whatever, like, but daily UX design tasks. Yeah. Like, you know. Oh, you want to talk shop? You want to, you want to really talk about what we do? And, uh, All right, let's cut this. Let's cut this whole <laughs> shit out. Let's cut no, it no, out. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think that it's it totally depends on the company, right? Because if you've got an Airbnb or you've got like I don't know about a Virgin, but if you've got a Fidelity, there's so much money dumped into creating a whole design system of plug and play materials. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a lot, it's so, so different, same title, but so different than a startup where they're probably expecting you to know some CSS and HTML. Like yeah. they want you to be a little more hands-on with the development. Mm -hmm. And also for a startup, you could be creating the entire design system from scratch and like working with a brand team. Um, so it's, it's, it's the same title, but vastly different. Yeah. Um, and I think, it's interesting with startups as well, because um, my company is not a startup, but it functions like one. Its growth is really good. And I, I don't know whether I should be saying this. Maybe I'll, I'll cut it out later. Let me let me restart the sentence. So the cut seems seamless. <laughs> <laughs> my I company works. More I think you should keep this stuff in there. Like, well, this is yeah, a good stuff. Nobody, nobody needs to hear about <laughs> how UI UX is like some people build it from code. Some people, yeah, some people know. Or, um, look, I, I don't know. I don't know code. All right. And like my company has a yeah, whole really great development team. So I don't need to know code. 
right? So what we do on a daily is we... Thank God for the developers, right? Yeah, I know. I know. I love them. They're so good. They're, I, they're really yeah. nice. They're really nice. People. They really are. Yeah. And... Um, and I, I, I also try, like active. This is like the difference between being a design student and being a working designer. Like there's this interaction thing that you need to like be aware of. Like, so I try to keep the design that is, you know, easy to develop. Like even some of the easy designs are hard, difficult to develop because I don't know how code works, but I'm getting an idea of like what can be or cannot be. But then I see these Instagram posts of like this crazy UI. I'm like, you'll never be able to maintain that. Like <laughs> imagine giving that to developer and being like, this is a company that we're trying. Uh, this is a site that'll be, you know, that'll be changing every month. And so the upkeep is going to be like, you, you're going to want to stab yourself if you're a designer for like a site like that. It's fucking holographic, 3D yeah. objects moving, floating in space. Like it's fucking nuts. But that's where everything's moving, right? I mean, that's what people want, the motion motion graphics. Motion that's graphics, the exciting yeah. stuff. Motion graphics. I mean, that's what, that's what like... I should, probably shouldn't talk too much about Robinhood, but but that's what that's what like Robinhood's getting in trouble for, right? Is like the celebrating your your gambling, your day trading. It's like confetti and stuff. Look, uh, Robinhood. Robin yeah, I'm like an early proponent of Robinhood. I love Robinhood. Oh, really? Yeah, you yeah. love Robinhood. I've okay. been using Robinhood for like three years now. Um. Yeah. The thing about Robinhood is that the thing about everything right now is like it's for the masses. Like centralized power is like it's dwindling sort of. Like everything is like even the sex industry. All right. Like porn was kind of like there were these houses like your um, what's a. Uh, but, so, but so you're going to reference OnlyFans, right? I mean, you're taking your there you go, yeah, democratizing, the yeah, 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 the, the democratize everything, right? like yeah. OnlyFans. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I know where you're going. Yeah, there you but, go. <laughs> but so I think that Robinhood, no, so Robinhood, that's a lie. That's a total lie because because they're selling user data. Their structure, there was no way that they could make money off the fast like brokerage that they're they're playing fast and loose with it they were selling user data for their revenue stream to sh- to show retail investor trader behavior um but it's a it's an issue for me because they did champion themselves as being as making building wealth more equitable which i which i really think is important um but i don't think that's actually like how do you make money doing that you don't. That's the thing. So the thing, <laughs> thing about all of this, it's all of this is like it's um, you know smoke and mirrors. The trick is what I I this is what you this is what I paid tuition at LSE for is to teach me that the trick to making money is creating smoke and mirrors about um, oh, yeah. about making making people feel like you know they can do it. They can do it. I did it. I, I got on Robinhood. I felt like a broker. I made 60 bucks. I'm stoked. <laughs> and so are millions of people on Robinhood. There are only a fraction 
of the population that that have made actual money on Robinhood. And when more people started well, making money, you know, that's when the thing happened that we can't talk about. Um, GameStop. <laughs> no, we can we can t- we can talk about GameStop. We can talk about GameStop. I've already prefaced. I've given my uh, disclaimer. I think we, we can talk about GameStop. But I so I struggle with. I mean, you know me. I like game design. I'm I'm interested in gamification. But I struggle with the irresponsible gamifying of investing which it really isn't investing because robin hood's day trading which really isn't investing there i struggle with how unethical it is that they're putting that tool out there and playing fast and loose with you know making sure their users understand the high risk actions that they're that they're taking um and I mean, it's all for like they 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 pretend like it's for making uh, building wealth more more accessible because you know you used to have closed funds you know closed mutual funds um, minimum investments uh, before fractional shares like all that stuff was uh, investing in the stock market was very inaccessible but and so I do I do think that it's great that Robinhood pioneered or at least were you know they really delivered the fractional share to the market but i think that they're i think that that's all a charade i think i don't think that they're truly for the little guy um and i i I don't but i don't know how you would actually do that i don't know how you would make building wealth more equitable Um, I don't know. <laughs> I I I I'm trying to think of whether it's possible. You know, again, um, I I don't know how many times I brought up capitalism. I feel like a fucking um, like a sophomore <laughs> eco student bringing up capitalism. It's all about yeah, capitalism, can, dude. Sorry, I don't think um, that. No, no, it's like you cannot. I I don't think it's possible to make wealth equitable in the way that we think it is like sure the because there are examples everywhere of the wealth gap shortening as well as lengthening like there are there are examples of both of these things around the world like when when you hear the criticism um, around capitalism is that you know it's making the rich richer it's making the poor poorer yes it is but also not really not really because in when you look at the data in africa it's seen that because of capitalistic growth and um and production methods the the middle there are more people now in the middle class that have come up from below the poverty line because of capitalism and you know it, it's it's like what else has worked there is no economic model that's gonna work in the way we think it's gonna work that's the truth and that is because everything is right. limited and that's the truth if every you can't have there are not an infinite amount of apples to distribute amongst yeah, people yeah. If, if resources are finite then you're just you're gonna have yeah, supply and demand. yeah yeah it's like the whole thing is you know whatever and the thing about robin head is that 
Yes. I I think there should be more education around um around um like trading in general because like you said Robinhood is for day trading and not like and not like trading trading but I've not it could, it could be used responsibly. Exactly, yeah. It, it could be because they have fractional shares. So they have fractional shares. You can I mean, well they even have crypto on there, but um I mean, the most responsible thing you can do is through Robinhood, take a small amount of money, take whatever you can and start to put it into index funds. And then don't look and then continue to contribute to it and don't look at it for 10 years. That's what you need to do. Yeah. But that's so boring. Exactly. It's so boring. People Dude. just want it, to, it's, it's not fun. Becoming a millionaire is boring. It's boring. It's fun after you become well, well, a millionaire. Well, becoming, <laughs> yeah, right. What? But the but the the most guaranteed way to become a millionaire is super boring. The high risk way of buying uh, fifty thousand dollars worth of penny stocks and 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 like the two percent chance that those penny stocks like go up six hundred percent. That's fun, but that doesn't happen. That never happens. No. <laughs> but it, it's. I just think that apps like Robinhood or someone needs to do it, but they need to teach, take this like fractional share method and start teaching younger investors to take what they can and park it in there and leave it there. And index funds, it's like 98% of the time or something, index funds outperform uh, traders, like, you know, managers. So like, why are people going for this? 2%? Really, really quickly explain what index index uh, funds are so the index funds are when you're buying into a, a collection of top performing like blue chip stocks so you so you've got but it's balanced so you've got your blue chip stocks like microsoft apple like all the all the big names that over time because those companies because they're a going concern so like it would take a catastrophe for microsoft's stock to plummet Right. Um, so, so those are, those are decent investments, but even still they're going to go up and down a lot. So what, what an index fund is, is just an indexed number of stocks that include Microsoft, you know, it includes all the big players, but it also includes a bunch of other stuff that's, you know, packaged in there to offset the up and downs. So over time, over 10 years, an index fund will go up. It, it, it mirrors the economy. Right. If the economy goes up, the index fund's going to go up. It's like so building. Like why you? <laughs> yeah, build, uh, build a portfolio that's going to like help you retire or something. But I don't think it's a one-stop can... shop. It's it's yeah. There you go. Yeah, but I think that's in general. Um, the education around trading is that that's that's why we hire stockbrokers to trade for us. That's what they kind of do. And that kind of falls into the realm of like a riskier mutual fund, you know? Right. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Because that's what a mutual fund is. So the mutual fund is going to be a selection of, of a certain sector often um, that is human man. I mean, obviously they have like a huge slew of algorithms at their fingertips and, you know, teams of 200 analysts who yeah. put together and crunch data for them to make decisions. But, but yeah, the, I mean, the mutual funds are at the end of the day, like 
they're just higher risk index funds, right? I mean, they're just higher risk portfolios, which people buy into because they're looking for that 15% annual return as opposed to the, you know, seven or eight that you might get from an index fund. Yeah, I agree. That's but, what I but, did. But mutual funds are are inaccessible, right? Because I mean, a lot of times you need to you need a minimum investment. Yeah, mutual fund is like you put in the money, and they have a bunch of people do the same thing, and so they have a pool of money, and then this group of people who are like professional traders, they, they kind of yeah. take the decisions for us <laughs> and and use our money to make yeah. more money and kind of give us a little piece. Yeah, know? exactly. And then, yeah. and then, and then, yeah, exactly. Pull <laughs> some for themselves. Yeah, there you go. That's so smart though, That's right? Like what, you know, the first thing I learned is like, if you start a business, always use OPM, other people's money. That was like, right. what was it in yeah. the book? That was like the chapter. OP, other people's money. How do yeah. you use it? 50 ways, right? And so that's like yeah. the smartest thing to do. <laughs> what was that? Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Is that that real estate <laughs> yeah, yeah. book? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I read that book as a kid. And I was like, wow, I've cracked, <laughs> I've cracked the code. This is it. <laughs> well, did I tell you that there was, a, there was a Rich Dad, Poor Dad board game? Did I tell you that? No. So, so my dad was super into teaching me about this stuff, and they made uh, when once the rich dad poor dad brand was strong enough, they made this rat race board game where you would, the the whole point of the game was to get on the inside track, the passive income track. So the game is just teaching you that like if you're on salary for the rest of your life, you're a huge sucker. That's like that's that's the whole point of the you're game. a rat. It's like. It's yeah. like it, yeah, you're a rat, basically. Like, if you stay on salary, you're stuck on the slow track. But the but it was funny because it actually the the part of the game was like managing your your credit card debt. Like, <laughs> I just it's just so funny to me that my dad would sit my brother and I down and be like, "All right, well, so how much credit card debt are you in? Like, you're gonna want to make sure that your passive income exceeds your expenses, and then then you're on the fast track." Um. But I do think that all of that stuck with me. Um, I think that a lot of what I learned from my parents regarding credit usage, like leveraging debt responsibly, you know, having passive income be like the ultimate, the the ultimate goal um, has stuck with me, which is pretty funny because like a lot of those things I think are, I don't know. There's, there's definitely like a growing resentment, don't you think towards, towards passive income, um, particularly in, in real estate with, with landlords. I think it's imp- what your dad did was important. And I think my dad did that too. teach me about credit card bills. And it's serious. I'm, I'm, <laughs> we're both smiling. I don't know why it's not funny. It's really yeah. true. Yeah. And I think more people should learn about that because credit card debt, is a slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. My dad told me this. I remember, um, told me clearly, never, once you use your credit card, they're going to keep telling you to like pay monthly. Never pay monthly. That's when the banks win. That's when, that's when you're in. Oh, of course. They trap you. You're of done. Of course, that's, that's when that's when every dollar you've spent is now a buck twenty, a buck twenty-five. Yeah. So and it completely negates the rewards that they sold you with. No, 
what I was told is, is use a credit card, make sure that in your bank account, you have the money for what you just spent on your credit card. Never use a credit card for anything that you can't immediately pay off right then and there. Exactly. Otherwise, you're losing. Exactly. Never you're exceed losing. your salary but, but, and uh, always pay it off before the deadline. There you go. You're done. Right, right. But but I think that it's so easy. I mean, it's easy for me to say that because I think that maybe credit cards, some people are in just like tough situations where they need to u- utilize immediate credit to, to get themselves out of a hole. I think there's I think there's like different kinds of situations there. It depends on whether you're going on a shopping spree or you need a quick micro loan to like pay bills. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's true. I think a lot of the, yeah, like you said, you can either be stupid or you're just in a tough spot. You know, you don't have any yeah, room. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so I feel like an asshole sitting here and being like, don't spend money. You know, like yeah, obviously no. people need to leverage. Yeah. We're like, talking to cards. the stupid portion of the population. Hey, you don't need to yeah, go shopping yeah, exactly. unless you can't pay it off. Yeah. You know? Um, there's another thing that's in, in the works already seems like it's, uh, bursting this, uh, short-lived, maybe short-lived NFT bubble. Um, oh my God. So I've been trying to like educate my, can you, do you, have you read about it? Can you give me a rundown on NFTs? Sure. Um, it's a cash grab and, uh, and a, <laughs> and a bubble <laughs> that's already burst as of 12 hours ago. Um, no, I'm kidding. So oh, NFT really? is like. It's called non-fungible token, and it lives in this yeah. cryptocurrency of blockchain world. And so the thing is that right. in order to what what the whole news thing is, everybody's talking about is like art as an NFT. Anything can be NFT, but digital art, digital, digital art, art. yeah, digital anything art. Anything can be NFT. Anything yeah. can be NFT. So digital art is selling for millions right now as NFTs. And so the way you can first there are two things first of all what the hell does that mean right like what is an like it doesn't make any sense if you think about it like a digital art like i can just take a screenshot of that and i have an exact replica like like nft is supposed to make a piece of artwork just the one like it's the one there's no other replica of it it's an original digital piece which is like an oxymoron like an original digital piece right In, right yeah. counter we got counterfeit jpegs now yeah counterfeit jpegs it's like the easiest thing to do is like but only in code <laughs> is it only in code is it nft because if i take a screenshot of that image then i have it too um and you right. just paid a million yes. bucks for what like a photo, like what the fuck are we doing here? Like, and so yeah. the thing is that well, it's a pride thing, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it is. It is definitely a pride thing. It's like, or it's also like a novelty thing. It's like, oh, this is a new thing that I can spend my money on, you know. But yeah. also, it's uh, there's like speculation that's bad for the environment. So the blockchain, the process of making it an NFT is a very complex computer uh, process like a lot of com- computation right. has to take place and that uses a lot of that has a big carbon emission and a carbon footprint right so it's all, all the the parallel processing to mine it and, and, and process it isn't it isn't it like um the emissions for mining blockchain right now exceeds the entire like emission total for Pakistan or something. I was reading that the other day. It's like, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but sure. Totally. 
I accept it. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Because it sure. makes because it makes a lot of sense because it costs a lot of money to. It's called gas. They call it gas. So if you have an NFT, say we take a screenshot of this page and we go to OpenSea. Now OpenSea is like a website that sells. You can buy and sell NFT art, and there are many of these websites, right? And so in order to upload something on OpenSea, they have to make your image or video, or whatever, into an NFT. And so they cost. It costs money for the process, and so it's gas money, and depends on like how many people are making NFTs at that point. So if you do it at 12 a.m., it's kind of cheaper. But on average, it costs from like fifty dollars to a hundred dollars to upload something. So then. <laughs> it's like monopoly. Then you have to get the little coins called bitcoins or ether. Right? <laughs> you collect little plastic coins. No, keep going. Uh, keep going. Yeah. Anyway, so um, now OpenSea uses Ethereum, right? So the coins are called ether. Right. Um, and so then you can price it like point zero 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 five ether, and then hope to God that somebody bids higher than what you paid in gas money. And so, a lot of people that you don't read about on the news are losing money by making NFTs, and so it's a cash grab. Like it's fucking yeah. crazy. And apparently, according to CNN, uh, NFT prices are down seventy percent, like seven zero, as of today. It's cr- it's already crashed. So you think it was just like a train that people wanted to hop on? Like pe- people were spending money to get on this this trend? I think NFT is going to be present in the future. Okay, it's going to be a part of the economy. Yeah. But right now it's just novelty. It's like, do you, like, what are we even buying as NFTs? Like stupid GIFs? Like what the fuck are we doing? Like we're spending... Okay, Sophia the Robot sold an NFT for 700K. Sophia the robot made an NFT and she said, yeah, I don't even know what it, I don't even know. Is it, wait, do you I don't know, know what Sophia the robot is. Sophia the robot no. is, I, I don't know if she's the first, but she's the famous celebrity AI robot whose face looks like a woman and the back of her oh, head okay. is metal. Oh, okay. Actually I do. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I do know yeah. that. I do. I've seen, I've seen the photos. Yeah. People sit around and have conversations with her. Um, and so she made an NFT and sold it for 700K. And she said, Sophia the robot, that she plans to make more. I know people who graduated with me without who, who don't have a job yet. And Sophia the robot just made 700K US, US, USD. There you go. That's, that's the, that's, that's, these are NFTs. You want to hear something crazy? Here's this game called Decentraland. So people who don't know, uh, Tabor is also a, a game designer. So he'll, you'll be interested in this one, right? Decentraland. Do you know about this game? No, I don't. So it's a to be honest, game. I don't really, I'm not doing much in the game design world anymore, which is kind of sad, but it's the reality of it. Do you plan on getting back into it though? Hopefully, hopefully I'm working on, uh, I mean, I'm trying to do side projects, but, um, actually that's another compliance thing. I am actually limited by my contract in, in terms of what I can pursue on the side, but, um, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working on certain things. I don't know whether, 
game design specifically is something I'll get back into, um, or I'll just probably leverage it as, you know, a skill and as part of some greater puzzle that I get into. Maybe on the side, you can like make it come up with a game that you can license or something. Is it, how is it compliant? Is it like makes, well, maybe I can make a game that makes like day trading really fun. Right. Yeah. I could name it like, uh, after some, what is it? The fairy tale, the guy who like robs from the rich and <laughs> gives to the poor. If you name it that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, name it exactly that. The whole thing. Guy that, uh, guy that robs from the rich and gives to the poor game, yeah. board game. Yeah. Yeah. Link, link it directly. Really well in the app store. Link it directly. All the chips are Bitcoins. All the players are digital, but it's played on a board with holographic, uh, whatever. Make it, make it fan, make yeah. it like super. Yeah, or, or you just, it's an app where you trade GameStop shares for Bitcoin. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's all it's for. Yeah, that's a good game. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, tell me, so what's this blockchain game? So it's called Decentraland. It's like Sims. But it's a blockchain version of it. Okay. So people okay. are... Uh, this makes me so mad. People are buying land within Decentraland with real money or Bitcoins or whatever. And they're building homes on those said land. And they're decorating these homes with NFTs. And so... The world is burning and we are moving into our computers for a nice, happy, safe life. Yeah, no, I was actually talking about this today. Uh, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, the world burning is something that our parents' generation became aware of and was staring down you know, the barrel of that gun. But now for our generation, it's almost like it, it, it feels so intimidating that I think that there's this huge move towards virtual worlds because like, what else are we going to do? Like the, the virtual worlds aren't scary. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. We're going to move out of the cities, uh, live in a pod and then, get into our the only thing missing is like a vr upgrade to decentraland then you're in it then it's done right you're good yeah right you're good i love it like look at us like (laughs) okay like um the covid covid we're all inside we're not moving around there's decentraland there are vr goggles i can finally call you over to my place you don't need to burn you don't need to like spend time getting into a car, getting on a plane or whatever. We can hang out in my uh, Decentraland home and then we can all log out. It's, it's the future. This is the future. I don't think it's going to, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen though. Cause I, I really don't think that we can replace, I don't know. Like I definitely yearn for seeing my friends again in person. And I feel like people are, people are, are sick of it. I mean, yeah, okay. I'm just joking. <laughs> just making fun of this stupid yeah. game. 
but nah, it's like an expensive like... version of Sims. That's it. So you really are burning money in that game to like achieve things. Oh yeah, you need to buy NFTs. It's it, you need to spend um, like bitcoins or ether to like buy stuff on that game. But who who is doing this? I mean, it's the same thing that makes me wonder about all the, um, I mean, the micro purchase games out there where people are spending like hundreds of dollars a day on Candy Crush. Like who who out there is actually doing that? Um, hundreds. Yes, I've I've spent uh, some yeah. money on a on a game. Uh, <laughs> really? I've spent. Wait, uh, yeah. What like, game? <laughs> I used to play this game called. Uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Um, for I forget what the subtitle was or whatever. It's a Game of Thrones game, and it came out like a few years ago. I used to play like maybe four years ago on my phone, and I was pretty good at it. And I joined like the Discord server, the whole thing, right? I was part of the community. I knew people. I spent money, and then I spent too much money, and I was like, "Whoa, this, this is good stuff." <laughs> so, so, did you think of it as like? a hobby like were you justifying spending the money i mean maybe i'm already i'm overthinking it but what you know like in a hobby like you're into guitar so if you're spending money on anything playing guitar related and you justify it that way that makes sense but for for something for for a game like that where you justify is like okay this brings me joy as a like a hobby a way that i spend my time and therefore this money that i'm spending is worthwhile to me you know, for me, I don't know about like everybody else. There are people who spend more money than I've ever spent on a video game or whatever. But oh, um, for me, I think it was like it was at a point in time where I was I forget, but I think I was working or I just quit Ernst & Young and I'm trying to figure out where to go for my master's or whatever. And like, <laughs> like I'm trying to like achieve things in life, but I'm not being able to. I'm stuck in yeah, my room. And this is like a window yeah, into no- a life where there's achievement and there's like reward and friends. And I'm like, I bought into that. And I think people are still buying it. And NFT came at a time where we're stuck at home and it's beautiful. It's like, yeah. So I think it's exactly that. I think it's exactly what you just described. I think that a lot of these games with virtual worlds where you can accomplish something provide this low risk, low consequence environment. Well, except for unless you're, unless you, it becomes a money pit, but it provides this low consequence environment where you can feel like you achieved something. You can feel like you got to that next level or that you built that little house in the Sims or I don't know, whatever. And it's a, it's like a little microcosm of personal achievement um, that you can escape to when achieving things like that in the real world is risky. It has consequences. It's scary. <laughs> like, and more than that, it takes time in the real world. That's the thing. That's the catch. Yeah. Yeah. It takes yeah. time. Right. It takes time. And in these games, it's quick. Like, and you were doing it in between, in between, uh, that's like a pretty funny time to be doing in it, between right? like, lunch and dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But like in between a job and grad school where you don't totally know what the next step is, you're spending your time yeah. spending money in a game. Right. But, but that probably has to do with stress. Do you think you were stressed at that time? 
I don't want to assume. Yeah, maybe. Like, maybe definitely. Like, I forget exactly what time it was, but if it was before I applied to design school, I was stressed. Like, I didn't know what to do. Quite yeah. honestly, like, I was kind of lost, um, and I was doing all these like Coursera courses and edX courses to like build a portfolio that I could apply to design school with. And it was a stressful time. Like I really didn't think that I would get an acceptance. And for the most part, I didn't. Like I applied to eight colleges. I got rejected by six. Um, but that is the thing. Like you take your chances and, and that, that time period is stressful and it's depressing. I was like really depressed. And that game provided this like right. surge of dopamine. And I could oh, go totally. on a That's go exactly on a, like a whole dopamine rant right now because I've been thinking a lot about the dopamine thing, economy, and like it's like it's fucking crazy. Oh, I think about that too, and that's I, I think that's exactly what it was. Is that in the day to day, you were working on this delayed gratification task, your portfolio, where the payoff is like very unclear, very uh, personal. Because uh, failure in that case is, you feel like it's a reflection on you. I mean, I'm, I'm probably projecting. This is like my own experience with portfolio building. But, but that's very stressful. And so it's easy to log into a game, like a virtual world, and get accomplishment like that. Like yeah. just, you know, you, whatever you, I don't know what you do in those Game of Thrones games. You're like, what, what would you do? Do you like pay to assassinate people or like pay no, to like build grow, a kingdom? Grow, or? grow crops and build You were growing crops in a game of Thrones game? Kingdom. That's, that's yeah, what they have you doing? It's all what? the same model, man. It's all the same model. I know. Um, what is it just Farmville? But yeah, it's game Farmville, but Game of Thrones. Yeah. It's it's yeah. like, it's, uh yeah, chewing gum, but Candy Crush. Yeah. Angry Birds, but Candy Crush. Yeah. It's all cross. But the thing is, like, also, yeah, you're depressed. You feel like a loser at some time. You're like, what are you doing? You're, you were in finance one moment. You were in consulting one moment. Next moment, you're like, you want to be a designer because you had, like, a pottery class in high school and you can draw and play the guitar. So you think, like, you can be a designer. And I'm like, what are you doing? And then in the, yeah. in the game, you're like, you're fu- you're a fucking king. You're a king. You have dragons. There you go. It's great. It's great. It's great. I know, but it, but I think that it's tough because it's not shareable, right? I mean, like those accomplishments in the game are very individual, unless the game is like multiplayer or whatever. See, I but, disagree. Um, I disagree. Nowadays, you have the Discord, so this is what like had me in it. Like, right? I was so addicted. Yeah. Like. Like I was more addicted to Game of Thrones than I was addicted to, addicted to cigarettes in my life. Like honestly, like I was a part of the Discord server. I had friends from I don't know where they so lived. So there, so but the, but those people you're sharing that accomplishment with them. So it uh, maybe it just feels it makes the accomplishment feel more real because now that's like you belong to this community. Oh, it's so people real, who are celebrating. So real. Yeah. And in the Game of Thrones, when you're sleeping, people can attack your kingdom. So, you know, you wake up in the morning and like all you've Uh-oh. done is in like ruins. steal your crops. Yeah, steal your crops, yeah, they stole destroy your, your crops. buildings, everything's like everything's burning. And then you go on the Discord server, you're like, hey, man, 
I want a backup, and then the that? whole team goes on. Like, yeah, takes revenge. Who stole it's my great. Yeah, who stole my wheat? What am I gonna feed my horses? Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Uh, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I and I think that that's I don't know. That's everywhere now. I feel in the early stages of digital gaming. I think that there was a, like a lot of that virtual accomplishment was was looked down on, but as like multiplayer communities have grown, it's validating. And now, you know, if you have enough people who buy into it, that accomplishment does take real value. I mean, it creates this like experiential value that is shared. And so it becomes very real because you have so many people buying into it. And I don't mean buying in as like Bitcoin. I mean, buying in as like, (laughs) they all believe the same. same And now even, even people who don't pay for video games, they're still like, uh, they're still profitable because of the ads. There are like so many ads in video games now. It's every level there's like an ad, whatever. But what got you into like game design and stuff? Did you like play, play a lot of games growing up? Yeah, I've, I've definitely played a lot of games across like so many categories, like board games, video games, you know, physical games, whatever you want to call it. Um, throughout my whole life. I'm competitive. So that always kept me coming back. Um, but yeah. Oh man, this is taking me back. I haven't really thought, cause this is, remember when we were going through our thesis and they were just pushing us for why, like why the hell we were yeah. focused on the topic we had chosen for our thesis. And it, they would like break you down to the point where you're like, I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, That's a good question. Actually. Uh, I'm going to go now, but, uh, Yeah. So I think that I devoted myself to playing so many games. I started, and I'm I'm just a compulsive analyst. So I started analyzing like what makes a game a game. And from there, I think you just start to notice patterns and start to figure out how you could create your own, how you could design a game. And then I tried that and realized that I just love watching people try get like game designs, get, you know, broken or not like play testing games. is just so fun. Um, frustrating at the same time though, because people, depending on the player you have, like they'll just destroy it. They'll absolutely just like shit all over the thing that you've created. Um, but it's, uh, you know, that's valuable in learning for the next iteration. Irina, actually, uh, we had we had some uh, thesis exercise where we did that, like push each other to get at the, you know, the central ethos of our thesis. And I remember she called me out because like she thought that I just liked uh, creating these playtest sessions where I could like observe and manipulate behavior. And I was just like, do you? you just call me a sociopath. Like, are you, are you just saying that like I'm into designing games because I like to engineer people's behavior? Um, and I think it was scary because I think she was, <laughs> she was somewhat right about that, but yeah. Um, I, I think that's what it comes back to for me is, is uh, I figured out the, the certain patterns in game design and then realized that I liked leveraging those patterns to create play behavior. That's pretty cool, actually. 
Um, as long as, you know, I, I think, I think that, I think, you know, we all have tendencies, but we need to like manage them in a healthy way. Like I'm sure, I'm sure like Stephen, Stephen King, the, the author, yeah. right? What about him? I'm sure he's yeah. messed up, but he's not like, yeah, yeah. but he's channeling <laughs> it in, in a way that's profitable in a way that's right. healthy and right. it's creative and whatever. Like, that's true. That's what true. is this? This is like a failed attempt of me trying to be like a psychoanalyst. Like, <laughs> what is this? Why am I doing this? Part? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. But but was it ever like enforced by your family in terms of like was it made into like all right Friday's a game night or like Saturday's game night? Did you were you involved like that? I don't know if it was ever that regimented, but it's definitely just no, I mean it's definitely just in the culture of my family. We definitely play a lot of games. No, it was never I don't think we ever had like set game nights. But my dad I mean, I don't know, this is this isn't just like why game design but like why designing or creating things it's like the same this is the same path that we all think about but my dad is a very creative person um and so i you know my whole life growing up watching him create things and admiring that i think just brought me to the point where i was like like i want to do that too i want to i want to be able to create multimedia you know across disciplines um which I think is what led me to led me to industrial design because I thought it would be very general, right? Um, I thought that it would be a design field that would be applicable in a multitude of areas, and I would make that I would cross that that bridge when I came to it. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, totally. That's what I did. Like, As, yeah, yeah. I think that I mean I think you and I were probably in a similar position where we had confidence in our creativity. We were coming from non-design backgrounds, but we're, but we're analysts, right? I mean, you were, you were literally a a management consultant. Um, And so I I was very interested in design consulting um, and thought that industrial design would be the most general like field to get to, to get me thinking about just solving problems using design. Um, I don't know if that's what it ended up being, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I still feel like I was able to use it to, I, I, I don't know, I guess to like, I got something out of it, right? <laughs> like, I feel like it got me, it just got me to the next stage, but that's such a, yeah, I don't know. I, I get what no, you're saying. I think I, I think that um, you and I are kind of like similar, maybe on this on the same boat, maybe. But like when I start, the re- the only reason I went management consulting, like, like as a after like a year of therapy, maybe, and also um, it took me ten years to like accept the fact that maybe. I don't, I don't want to be boxed in. I want options. Like even in a job, like I don't want the same project forever, you know, like, um, of course. Yeah. Like, 
a sales job that like your whole thing is selling the product forever right projects don't change or whatever there are micro changes yeah sure like whatever but in consulting that provided me the room to like get into different projects get into different industries talk to different people and i think industrial design served the same purpose and that's why i went to it when i figured out that there is such a thing and the only reason why i didn't go into illustration or graphic design or whatever or photography photography would have been nice too but industrial design allows us to like you know to like bob and weave and maneuver ourselves across industries and just be this like i don't know it's undefinable we just like we can be whatever <laughs> it's and right. it comes with right. it comes with a con with the- like yeah it's very easy to get lost in it very easy to um kind of be confused at times as to like where we're headed and what am i doing and what's next you know? but you take solace in the fact that the future's open um yeah well i mean i think that the the thing that that makes industrial design that way is that it's just it's focused on the the problem right i don't know now we're just we're just circling around industrial design which is like i feel like we did that for for two and a half years at PSD. It's like, what is industrial design? <laughs> yeah. But do you think, do you think that what you're doing now is like a mix of the two degrees that you gained in a way? Like, are you an amalgam of like your experiences now? I think, I don't know. That's, I feel like I'm still just figuring it out every day. Because for me as a as a designer when i'm creating something i'm obsessing over what the user is thinking i'm trying to put myself in their shoes the entire time i'm creating it for better or for worse which is why i think that i actually have a complicated relationship with research <laughs> uh and i know that's i feel like that's a very taboo thing to say in design but Do you ever like look at a research or feedback on one of your designs and you're just like, no, they're like, no, I'm not going to listen to that. Like, that's wrong. That's bullshit. I feel like, I feel like that happens to me and that is arrogance. I mean, that is, I, I, I know I should not think that way, but sometimes you just like, you know, that if you, if, if you cre- if you're able to to really bring what you're imagining to be as good as you're imagining it you know they'll like it i think that that like you just you really believe it um and i'll be honest i totally forgot where it's going with this but but, but I, I think that that's yeah. like one of the, the driving forces of design for me and it doesn't matter whether it's industrial design it doesn't matter whether it's ux design um I'm still just whatever I'm creating, I'm just obsessing over what the person using it will think. Um, and so the so then the discipline doesn't really matter, right? Right. You you said like a couple of things there. First, what like I'm trying to understand, are you saying that when you're researching, so you you try to get into the head of the user 
and now you have like an idea and then the research (laughs) yeah right and then the research and the data does not add up sometimes to that idea that you built right and so you tend to like reject the research and the data yeah I, i mean it can go both ways i can't so i can't I can't, right? I mean, especially at a big, especially if you're working on a team where you're not the researcher, where the researcher is is doing their their job and thank God for them. I mean, they're amazing at what they do and like research and data, all this stuff is super important. And it does make logical sense that that's what we should use. But there's definitely a part of me as, as a designer that feels confident in my intuition about creating something more confident than the, the data the research and data yeah. which i know I've is been there. so bad to say that <laughs> is like that is like a, that is so bad to say but, it's like a design pop I, I can't help it yeah no it really i, I get i, but get I can't help saying. it and i think that i feel like that and my imagination are really the two things that i bring to designing anything and the rest is very fluid the rest, like it's it's industrial design, it's UX design, it's well, really, it's only those two things because that's all I've really done. But I feel like I find myself in that boat sometimes. Is when I've like, I'm so sure that this is what they're thinking and this is what they want, but the data just doesn't right. support it for some reason. I know, data, data can be biased. Data can be biased. You can have bad yeah. surveys, bad data's constructed. Test you know. Sessions. But then, yeah, you know, totally. the only way to prove who's right, the data or your hunch, is to kind of like know, get I that, know. is to kind of like do user tests. That's the only way. I know. Somewhere, somewhere, yeah. Our professors, if they, if they listen to this, they will just be like oh, yeah. shaking their head. Uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's why it's tough. It's like, well, because the ultimate, like, the ultimate metric in, in the corporate world, at least for for design, is the the only data point that really matters is whether people bought it or not, right? Yeah, man. That's look, like the, the, honestly, like <laughs> honestly, I've studied how how data is made, like in college, and I've been a consultant. I I know what data is. All right, it's like it's not like set in stone; it can change. And very yeah. easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And so, I mean, how many times has the research said one thing? Actually, I don't really know the answer to this, but, but like it, ultimately if it sells, then like, what did the feedback even mean? If it sells, data doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so like that's, that's how I feel as a designer sometimes, but you can't get to that point without like the people are so data and research focused, they want to justify every decision made along the way. And you, you just can't go on hunches and intuition. Unfortunately, See, this, this could be like that way. in design, maybe when it's like low stakes, maybe, but this is a slippery slope when we're like, uh, yeah, data's made up. So like, I don't believe in COVID. Like, <laughs> Why wear masks? <laughs> well, obviously, obviously not yeah, that. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah, no, I know. I'm not I know. Like that. Just joke. Yeah, but I, I, I get what you're saying. There's a joke that economists have, um, you know, they, they called 
seven out of two recessions it's always a joke and that's like a data joke it's like it's like the data doesn't matter you know but yeah but scientific research is real wear wear masks and keep social distancing (laughs) whatever oh absolutely absolutely no i'm definitely thinking of a very specific kind of product testing data and research and feedback yeah i wonder like i wonder where all of this is headed because also the data and the research is changing every day on like going back to like nft and all those things like where are we headed like i don't even know like what's gonna happen like if as a as an industrial designer what like what's our call you know what's our calling um is is this it like all of the industrial designers are gonna now like stick to either ma- making vacuum cleaners or getting to ux is this it like this is it <laughs> this is the ceiling like what's what's next what's there should we help elon musk get his tesla to mars or like what's happening what are we doing you know or or should we like get should we like you know put our energy and like improve improve the planet that we're currently living on instead of like terrorizing and terraforming this hellscape <laughs> that's going to be Mars in a few years. I know. Like, what's happening? I know. Well, those are all topics that I feel like I could like pontificate about very, like <laughs> absolutely zero understanding. I feel like those are, those are topics that you've had people on to have expert and informed yeah, conversations yeah. up until this point. See, that's when the um, podcast becomes boring. (laughs) (laughs) When you have experts, the podcast becomes boring. Look, as, but, you know, know. that's the thing. Like, I would love to speculate with other designers on this because speculative design is that. It is that. It's like doing that with a bit more research. But it it starts here. Like, it starts with these stupid conversations that lead to something that you're like, all right, that's an interesting point, you know? Or yeah, maybe. I feel like a lot of it went way over my head when we were in school. But <laughs> were you never into like uh, uh, discursive? Did you did you like discursive design or no? I liked it, but my I feel like a lot of my experience with it was trying to wrap my head around it, sitting there thinking I got it, getting excited, explaining something to Thomas, and then Thomas would look at me. Like I was an idiot. <laughs> like I had, like I had no idea what I was talking about. And then I was like, "Oh, okay, all right, maybe, yeah, maybe I, I definitely, I definitely don't know what this is." <laughs> um, I feel like I would have needed an entire two two years to to like really wrap my head around and produce something in in critical and speculative design that I was like proud of. Definitely. Definitely. I think I had to take like three speculative design classes to actually get what it is, you know, like going into it, I had an idea, but there's a whole spectrum of speculative design. It's big. It's just this, like what we learned is just a tiny little, it's the tip of the iceberg, you know, um, there's so much you can do with it and it's very exciting field. Um, and I think, well, I think it was, I didn't help myself out because I was a brat, right? I mean, I don't know if you remember our like reading discussions, but I was always just like pushing back on it. <laughs> I was like, this is contemporary art. Do you remember when we did our readings? 
I don't, yeah. I don't want to blow up your spot here, but no. you and I would come in and uh, it's mostly, and I would be like, what the hell? <laughs> I remember we got labeled the children like, of neoliberals, read? neoliberalism, right? Yeah. Um, oh, oh, were we? Yeah, yeah because I we mean, were, that's, we that's were in support accurate. of the capitalistic economy. We were in support of capitalism. Right? Yeah. I mean, Look! Look no further than the whole last hour that we've been talking about. Or I'm here, yeah. and I'm like, index funds, yeah. index funds. Yeah, pay um, your credit card bills on time. Make money on the side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would like read it, and I'm just. I think I'm just such a cynic. But for me, it was just pages and pages and pages of people just saying overanalyzing something that I thought could be described in far less time. But then when I would try and have a discussion with someone about it and, and try to like take that stance, I would just get absolutely destroyed. <laughs> so, so then it's like, all right, yeah, there is, there is a lot more going on here, but so I definitely developed a respect for it um, through the class, but I don't, I don't think that I, um, I don't think I ever created anything substantive in in any of the in any of our, our critical or speculative design ventures. Did you after so what did happen to me after after those classes is I would have ideas from time to time for things that I would be like, oh, that would have been a good project. <laughs> like that would have been a good project for critical design. Uh, so I wish I had done that instead of. What was that? I created that little, it was like a little tower that you would set up. And if too many people in, in a room were using their phone, it would like scream at you. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that was my critical design idea. It was like, eh. And I, yeah, um, I mean. <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is awesome. I feel like I wish, I just so badly wish we could do this co-located because I feel like it. It's a different the, energy. Right? There's something about different energy. I think there's something about the Zoom that removes, like, for me at least, a humor element for it. Mm. Do you get that? I I feel like no? there are these weird delays that happen from time to time. Is the talking yeah. over each other isn't as organic as it is when right. the people, yeah. Of course. And I actually think that that impacts the humor because otherwise thing, cause I like, I think I like to think of our studio conversations is we would just joke around the whole time. <laughs> and yeah. so, and so it's like, this is so different because it forces you, you know, we're, we have this constraint now of not talking over each other, which is that like humor dies there. Right. If you're, if you're overthinking it. Yeah. I think I, so like, yeah, this is maybe, is, is this the first podcast you've ever like been a part of? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah I've never. So never like it took me like, you're going to be episode nine. All right. We're at episode seven right yeah. now. Can't have two white males yeah. right after each other, you know, had Jake. No, <laughs> <laughs> then I'm going to include a woman and then I'm going to have you on. But the thing is, um, yeah, like. 
you know, I want to say stupid things that don't mean anything. But the fact that the red light is blinking recording and this is going to be out in on the Internet, we're like over critical of what we say and like kind of keep on minor censoring ourselves, you know. Um, so it almost wa- totally. wants me to like almost makes me want to like make this podcast so difficult to find an underground. And so it's only spread through like, yeah. I don't know. So we can be free, you know, like, don't worry, say whatever. So people can be a bit more free. It. Yeah. Well, I mean, what would make you, what I think about that is then I feel like another way to get around that, but it would just be way more time consuming for you is to record a long enough conversation that, because I'm sure people fluctuate in and out of that, right? I mean, there are times when people are just rolling and they're censoring themselves less. And then there are times where you can tell that they're overthinking what they're saying. Yeah. And so, you know, like with enough recording, you'd be able to condense it down and find those nuggets where people are definitely not overthinking it. I think, yeah, it's funny. But that requires a lot of recording. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. And the thing is like, people usually are over censoring themselves right at the beginning. So like right when it's time to end at like an hour, an hour mark, people start opening up. So it's almost like I should start recording after an hour of talking to someone. Yeah. That's, that's interesting for me. I felt like I just, I like my brain got fried. I like stopped thinking about anything i was just like uh wait a minute (laughs) (laughs) what was Um, my point i started getting like just yeah it's like wait what um yeah so i guess it's both of those things i mean it makes total sense to me that there would be like a warm-up and then someone's flowing um but then yeah for me i guess i would get to the point where i'm just like oh my god i'm just blabbing but i think that there's a subtle art to this. I'm, I'm starting to realize like the more I do it, it's like there needs to be these like black, these you're literally not saying anything, but you're saying something and it's like making these sentences and just like blabbering on. But then you, you should trust yourself that you're going to reach a conclusion where you're going to end that rant. And that's going to be the effect. Right. So it's like a whole different creative genre. It's like, yeah. Well, I feel like I'm okay at that in conversation. I mean, that's something it's like, you're not supposed to interrupt yourself. You should have, you know, a set endpoint to conclude a thought. But I feel like Zoom removes that ability for me. And I think it's the, it's all the distractions. Right. Yeah. There's too many distractions from there. I mean, it would have been amazing if if I started this when we started RISD. That would have been so much fun. Um, yeah, actually recording it at in the studio like once a week with a guest. That that's that's cool. But you know, it is what it is. But I I think I had. You're definitely. This is one of the most fun I've had recording a podcast like with you. You're a good guest, I would say. I'm. I'm glad to hear. I'm. I'm shocked. What I. I think that the challenge, if you had done that in the studio, I think it would have been a great 
I think that would have been great. But do you remember how stressed we were all the time? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We wouldn't. I wouldn't have been able to like continue. <laughs> I don't think anyone. Yeah, no. I think we would have like you would have been sitting there with your microphone with like a smile on your face, and people would just been like, "Oh my god, I do not yeah. have time to sit here for an hour." Like that is true. I barely have time to get my that work done. <laughs> like it's a great, it's a great concept, but. I always, yeah, like I always look back and, and regret things about the studio. It's like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. But then I think back on like when we were in it and we were just like so hyper-focused on how much shit we needed to do. Yeah. And it would consume everything. And it definitely, that's why, I mean, I don't think that I was involved as much as I would have liked to in the social scene of the studio. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't, maybe some people were, but I don't feel like I was ever truly able to be myself in the studio, if that makes sense. Because, mm-hmm. because there's just such a layer of stress over everything all the time. So. Yeah, I, I feel like whenever I met, I met you at like, whenever I met you with Emmett, I feel like you were your true self. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whenever yeah, you yeah. brought him along, yeah. or you, we were at his house, or whatever for the pink party, you were your true self. You were giggly, you were silly, you were funny, and I think I don't know. I think maybe like somewhere in the studio, you didn't find that balance of like being comfortable with joking around with political <laughs> incorrectness or something like that, you know, <laughs> and not be judged or maybe I don't well, know. Yeah, I think that's a part of it. But I also think that stress probably just like it's a it's a chemical thing, right? I mean, it affects your brain. So what's what's the what they're finding now? I'm I'm gonna butcher this, but like the the worst thing about poverty is that is you're stressed all the time. You can't function because like it's so hard to get out of poverty because like the very mindset of being in poverty is so stressful to your brain that it makes it function at a lower level. Well, I believe that. I believe Yeah, that. I mean, yeah, when I learned that I was like, well, that makes total sense because I, you know, when I'm stressed, I operate at my worst. So it totally makes sense that someone who lives their day to day with stressors every sing, you know, everywhere in their lives, like obviously it's going to be hard for them to accomplish something. And it's a vicious cycle too, you know. Exactly. I feel like at, at this there there is a point where like you get out of financial. Um, hardships and you reach a point where you're just comfortable achieving common things like paying your rent on time or having enough money to buy groceries and a little saving to kind of secure your future and not even like a lot ton of saving just enough to like yeah i can i can consistently live this lifestyle forever i think that takes away from the stress immensely like you just need to have enough money to like get food and have a roof over your head and that stress isn't there as much but yeah, but yeah, people who live like day to day on like checks that they earn, that's tough. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So expecting them to be able to lift themselves out of that while they're working with just a, uh, um, you know, just a disadvantaged chemical 
mindset. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just a lot. It's a lot. Like we can't even help. So. Like how do you expect the government or anybody to help them when we can't even help the homeless in downtown Los Angeles? Like, right. We can't even do the bare minimum. <laughs> like how are we going to help these? I know. I know. We need to get the homeless yeah. to below the poverty line before we can get the people from below the poverty line to above the poverty line. We need to get them on Robin hood and have them start <laughs> investing in fractional shares. Teach them how to invest in companies. There you go. How to day trade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go up to them and be like, hello, have you heard of a mutual fund? 